0: chapter 3, and uh, we'll be looking at the baptism of Jesus this morning. If you've uh, known the Lord for quite a long time and been growing in your walk with Him, you've probably discovered certain things, you've learned certain things by experience that are really hard to just tell younger believers about. Uh, There are certain things that it just seems that younger believers can't quite get a hold of when you tell them certain lessons you've learned, and they just don't see them as being that significant. And one of the things that you learn as you grow in your walk with the Lord is that God doesn't usually tell us why. He just doesn't. Now, we have a lot of whys. We want to know, but why? But why? As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to him, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things, and yet those are just the things that we're really curious about, aren't we? We want to know about all the white spaces in between the lines of Scripture. I mean, we aren't even obeying or understanding the black space, black parts, but we, we want to know the white parts. We're kind of like uh, little curious children who come to their parents and say, but, but why? And so then you say, well, I'm going to tell them. And then they say, but why? And so then you tell them and then they say, but Why? And you think, you know, I'm going to outlast them. And so you tell them and then they say, but why? And then finally, when you come to the end of the rope, you said, because dad said so. And that's just the way it is. Well, this morning, we're coming to one of those texts that is going to fill your mind with whys. And when it comes down to it, the answer is because God says so. And uh, I hope you can live with that without too much frustration. But this morning we come to a text where Luke is writing to to show us once again that Jesus is the son of man. The whole theme of Luke's gospel is Jesus is the son of man, that he was a human being in every respect except without sin. And he begins his gospel by discussing the conception of two important individuals, John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah and the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. And he kind of goes back and forth, back and forth, a little bit of John, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of John, a little bit of Jesus. And so we have been, in the last several weeks, been talking about John the Baptist. We have been learning about his ministry and his message, how he called sinners to repentance, how he warned them to flee from the wrath to come, that he told them that in order to have any assurance that they are going to be delivered from the wrath to come, They need to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, he said, because the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he warmed people. He threatened people and told them the Messiah was coming. His whole ministry was to get people's hearts humble and repentant and prepared to receive the coming King, Jesus Christ. And so Luke has spent some time on Jesus, but really we've seen his birth and then nothing, nothing, nothing. And then he talks a little bit about one episode that happened when he was 12 years old. Jesus came into the temple. He was sitting there among the the teachers of Israel, uh, both uh, asking and answering questions. And the text says all who heard him were amazed. And then Luke just kind of gives us a general summary and he continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, And that's all. Then back to John. Well, now in our text, some 22 years have passed and we can only wonder what happened during those 22 years. And because we're why askers, we want to know what kind of man was Jesus in his younger years? What was his voice like? What kind of food did he like? what did he do during his free time? What was it like to be the mother of a perfect son? What was it like to be the brother or sister of a perfect brother? What was it like for the synagogue leaders who knew Jesus? What about Jesus's neighbors? What kind of carpentry work did Jesus do? You see, those things are pretty fascinating. Wouldn't you like to have a table that Jesus built? That would be pretty neat, wouldn't it? Was he happy? Was he social? Was he withdrawn? Was he outspoken? And we could just answer, ask all these questions, but never get an answer because the Bible just doesn't say. And so, a lot of times we just can't ask why when the Bible doesn't give us an answer. But Luke tells us that Jesus started his ministry with this baptism, he had been a carpenter. And now he is switching to become the prophet and the great teacher and eventually the Lamb of God who had died to take away the sins of the world. But he wants us to know that Jesus was human. He was human. In our first text, which we're going to look at this morning, Luke is going to establish that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Then in the genealogy, which we will get to eventually, In that genealogy, he is going to establish that Jesus is the human descendant of Adam and Abraham and David, all of those key people in the messianic line. And then Luke is going to argue for the humanity of Christ by describing Jesus's temptation Jesus never sinned, but like all of us, he could be tempted to sin by Satan. And of course, that is what happened. And so as we come to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we are starting off on this little trifold argument that Luke is trying to present to again convince us that Jesus was the Son of Man. And so if you have your Bible, we are going to look at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. You can follow along as I read. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Now from these two verses, you are going to learn two important ways that Jesus demonstrated his love for you at the very outset and the very beginning of his ministry. And the first is this. Jesus was baptized for you. You know, Jesus was God. Jesus is self-sufficient. Jesus didn't need to do this for him. Jesus came to earth for you and for me. Look at the first half of verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Now, from the first half of verse 8, we can see several things. First, Jesus was baptized at the same time as the people. Now, when you look at this, you think, "Okay, so why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant because Jesus didn't have his own little private session with John the Baptist. He didn't say, you know, John, I don't want to be baptized with all these mongrels. You know, I want to do my own thing. You know, wait till they all go home, sneak me out here in the middle of the night and then baptize me. Now, he was baptized at the same time as all the rest of the people. Now, it is true that the text might be translated after all the people were baptized, but we know that John was continuing to baptize. So it's not like Jesus was the last person John ever baptized. We know he continued to baptize. We also know that Jesus was not some uh, private session uh, baptized baptized person because john 129 we find john the baptist saying to the crowds when jesus came to him behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so we know that jesus was baptized when the crowds were there and so the question is what does it mean when it says when or after all the people were baptized well i think all it means is this that when the Number of people which needed to be baptized before Jesus came on the scene was completed. Jesus came on the scene these people needed to be baptized. Remember John's ministry was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, there had to be a point when they were prepared so the Messiah could come. And I think it was after all those people were baptized and all their hearts were now um, right with the Lord and they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah that Jesus showed up on the scene. One thing is certain. Jesus came all the way down from Galilee, according to Matthew, traveling a good distance so that he could be baptized at the same time with all the rest of the crowds who were coming to john secondly we can see just from looking at the text that jesus was baptized in the same place as the people of course all the people are around so he's not only baptized at the same time but in the same place in the muddy waters of the jordan river now if you've ever been to israel the the jordan river is like the mississippi and it's kind of ironic that you would go through a ritual which symbolizes cleansing in the muddy waters of the Jordan. But Jesus didn't say, well, wait a second here. Can't you just pull out some water and put it in a big tank and let all the mud settle out and siphon it off so I can be baptized in clean water? No, he had the same baptism as everybody else. He didn't try and get special treatment. He was just associating with all the rest of those who were getting baptized. Thirdly, we can see that Jesus was baptized in the same way as the people. The word baptize, as we have learned, means to submerse or dunk or immerse under the water. And that is what happened with Jesus. Matthew 3.16, uh, you could turn there and you would read that Jesus went up from the water. And in Mark 1.10, it says Jesus came up out of the water. Why? Because he was in the water and then he came up out of the water. Which tells us how he was baptized, just like the word says fourthly jesus was not baptized for the same reason as all the people now even though it was at the same time in the same place in the same way it was not for the same reason and that's pretty obvious isn't it it's obvious because jesus had no sin so he didn't need to come and participate in a baptism of repentance since he didn't need to repent of anything He didn't need to flee from the wrath to come because he was the wrath to come. Luke merely says Jesus was baptized, but doesn't tell us why. And surely if you if when I looked at this, I thought surely Luke would have thought of Theophilus and all the people who would be reading this gospel that surely they would all think to themselves. But Jesus wasn't a sinner, so he wouldn't need to repent. So why did he get baptized? And so what Luke says is nothing. He doesn't tell us. Now, thankfully, we have a very weak answer in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. If you remember, when Jesus came to John, as Matthew records it, as he approaches, John says, wait a second here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I am not, I'm not even fit to baptize you. I, 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 you baptize me. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, permitted at this time for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Oh, well, that's helpful. What does that mean? Now, we can know several things for certain Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus said it was necessary that he was baptized by John. Jesus said it was right before God that he be baptized by John. And fourth, that it was not only something that Jesus needed to do, but also something John needed to do because Jesus did not say, it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness, but he said it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. A lot of people want to take this as something Jesus had to do, but it was something John and Jesus had to do. John had to baptize Jesus, and Jesus had to be baptized by John. And the reason, which of course doesn't really satisfy our curiosity, is to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is doing right before God. So Jesus was basically saying, John, God the Father wants me to do this. So John said, okay. Now, wanting to give you an answer, wanting to satisfy my own curiosity, I searched high and low to try and find as many resources as I could to see if I could come to a conclusion on this. I looked at 25 different commentaries on on Luke's gospel and 15 commentaries on Matthew's gospel to see if I could find a definitive conclusion for why Jesus was baptized. And what it means to fulfill all righteousness. And here's what I found. If you're one of those people who takes notes and likes to write things down on a list, put down your pencil. Because you will wear out the lead. Just listen. One person uh, cited several interpretations uh, from different sources. And one of them was Jesus was baptized because he was a sinner and needed to repent. Of course, that was a bogus interpretation. So We can throw that one out. Jesus was secondly, Jesus was baptized so he could become a disciple of John. That doesn't work very well because Jesus had his own disciples and John's disciples left him to follow Jesus. Third, Jesus was baptized so that John would know who he was. And so he would declare Jesus to be the Messiah. And you're thinking, well, John already knew who jesus was when he saw him at a distance he said behold the lamb of god he didn't need jesus to go under to know that he knew that before that so that doesn't work well fourth jesus wanted to honor john and his ministry and this doesn't work very well either because it doesn't fit the whole context which is all focused on jesus and his ministry not john and his ministry Fifth, that Jesus was baptized as a declaration that he was dying to his former manner of life and starting a new public ministry. The problem is, is why would he need to die from a perfect life? That is kind of taking the whole uh, Christian symbolism of baptism, dying to sin, to be born to newness of life from Romans 6, and applying it to this case, which I don't think was in the mind of Jesus or John. No, do no, I think the people looking could um, understand that. Six, Jesus was baptized so sinners could identify with him. And, and this is kind of the, you know, uh, you, you know, be everything to all men approach. You know, it, you know, if I want to reach some gothic, you know, punkers or whatever, I get my hair all spiked up and paint it red and get my ears all pierced up and, you know, nose pin and you know, bones and different parts of my body and my navel pierced and black leather and big, you know, chains and leathers and clunky things and say, hey, you know, now I can relate, you know, so I can share the gospel. I don't think that was Jesus's method. Jesus was already a Jew. I mean, he was identifying. He became a man. He was your commoner already. Seven, Jesus was baptized, some say, to show the crowds that he supported John's baptism. Well, of course he supported John's baptism. And and you think about that, well, you know, I mean, maybe. Jesus was baptized because he needed to consecrate or declare himself to be holy. The problem is he already was holy. He was holy from conception. He remained holy and stayed holy, and so he didn't need to become holy. Nine, Jesus was baptized as an inauguration into his priesthood. The problem is this doesn't match what Hebrews says when it tells us that Jesus' priesthood for the believer started when after he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Ten, Jesus was baptized to show the people that John's ministry and his ministry were complementary. That's a good guess. Uh, 11 jesus was baptized so he could store up righteousness so that later he could impart that righteousness to those who would believe in him and this view reads an entire theological system into the white spaces of the text the problem is is again jesus started out infinitely righteous maintained infinite righteousness and continued to be infinitely righteous so he didn't need to store up any righteousness he had infinite righteousness Twelve, Jesus was baptized because he wanted to associate with sinners to picture the scapegoat of the Old Testament, which symbolically carried Israel's sins into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Well, the problem with this is, oh, and they say, and then we know that what's happening, because right after this, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. The problem is Jesus um, didn't have uh, sin. It wasn't didn't bear his sins into the wilderness or anybody else's sins into the wilderness, He went in clean, he stayed clean and came out clean and didn't atone for anybody's sin out there. So that doesn't work well. Here's another one. Jesus came to identify himself with Israel by obeying the law of Moses, but the problem is the law of Moses never requires anybody to be baptized. Here's another one. Jesus was baptized as an example of obedience to those coming to hear John preach and be baptized. And this makes Jesus into someone who's kind of priming the pump. For baptism of repentance you know like when you're doing a revival and you want to make sure people come forward and you know pray the sinner's prayer you put a few plants out there so when it's come you know times a call you just have some people who are already saved and they kind of come moseying forward and look kind of you know sorry so that you know you kind of prime the pump of evangelism and this kind of makes jesus you know yeah yeah you know come on repent you know i'm, I'm doing it you do it too which makes jesus kind of deceptive because he didn't need to repent and Kind of smacks of manipulation too. 15, Jesus was baptized as a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, the problem with this is that surely no one in the crowds or John himself would have been able to understand this by what was going on. I think this is to take what we learn about baptism in the New Testament to the churches and try and import it back, you know, but maybe. Um, 16, Jesus was baptized to identify himself with John's message that the Messiah was coming. And this could be uh, true, Now, this has some merit. John is preaching Messiah is coming and then Jesus shows up. And so Jesus may be saying, yeah, John's message is true, uh, but John's message is always true. And the prophet's never needed people to confirm uh, their message. It was true whether people believed it or not. 17, Jesus was baptized so that John could present the Messiah he had been proclaiming would come to the people. And uh, this view, instead of making Jesus identify with John's message, message sees Jesus as living proof and the fulfillment of John's message. In other words, uh, Jesus came to fulfill what John had been preaching. Um, and that could be. 18, Jesus was baptized so he could identify with sinners. And uh, and this one has some merit. If you understand, uh, it's a little bit different than the one I previously mentioned. A specific kind of sinner, and that is repentant sinners. Uh, That Jesus came to identify with those who had humbled themselves and wanted to submit to God's will. And Jesus, of course, was humble, and he did want to submit to the Father's will, and so that one there is pretty good. Here's another one, 19, Jesus was baptized to signal or declare or demonstrate the beginning of his public call to ministry, which is, fits the context well. I like this one, too. But the question is, why did he need baptized? So, hmm. One com- commentator came up with this brilliant conclusion, we don't know. And that may be the best one to take, too. My best guess is that Jesus was baptized so he could identify with those who were coming with humble hearts to submit to the will of God. Of course, they were doing it to repent and submit to the will of God. Jesus was doing it to identify with them because that was the father's will. But being sinless, he didn't need to repent of anything. You know, he was like a clean dish that was washed again. So he associated with others who wanted to be clean before God. Those were the people that Jesus came to save. So whatever the reason, there is a lesson to learn here from Jesus' example. Whatever interpretation or combination of interpretations you want to take, one thing is crystal, crystal clear. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness, and in that way, he is an example for you and me. That is the crystal clear part. You know, often we want to fulfill some righteousness in our lives, don't we? You know, like a person who goes on a diet and they want to be fairly faithful. A person who wants to quit smoking in between cigarettes. Those who want to be mostly pure in their relationships. Those who want to show up on time most of the time. You know, those who want to read the Bible whenever they're bored, whenever they don't have anything else to do. This kind of attitude is one of Satan's devices to deceive people into thinking that they can be right before God by living a 80% or 90% or 95% or 99.99% Christianity. Listen, you're either right with God or you're not right with God. You're either in sin or you're not. There is no gray. You're either have your sins confessed and you're cleansed from all unrighteousness or not. And a lot of times people get duped by Satan into thinking, well, I am going to church and I'm trying to read my Bible and I am going to this, you know, Bible study or whatever. So, you know, 75% of my life is right with God, even though this 25% isn't. You're not right with God. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, if you're living in rebellion, you're living in rebellion. It doesn't matter about all the other things. You have to be right with God. And what's neat here is we see Jesus wanting to fulfill every degree, all righteousness, and wanting John to fulfill all righteousness, too. Fifth and finally, we see that Jesus prayed after he was baptized. And this is Jesus's first recorded prayer in Luke's gospel and luke emphasizes jesus prayer all the way through we're going to see this over and over again so i don't want to go into it in too much detail right now but we are going to see and these are just examples uh, jesus prays before asking his disciples an important question in luke 9 18 he prays before the mount of transfiguration in luke 9 28 he prays uh, just before he says come to me all you are weak and every laden He prays just before he taught to the disciples the Lord's Prayer. He prayed just before uh, uh, Peter's denial. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. And later after his resurrection, he prayed. And all these things, we see him praying, 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 praying. And one thing is crystal clear. And the obvious thing that you and I can learn from this is what? We need to pray. I mean, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to constantly pray, what about us? You know, the sin curse pea brains. No, we need it. We desperately need it. And of course, whenever you begin to ask somebody, so uh how's your prayer life? All of a sudden, they just feel that poke right there, don't they? I mean, I feel that. Just asking you that, I feel that. I mean, how many people pray too much? If you were to scour all the gravestones of the world, how many of them have written on there, I should have prayed less? No one thinks that. And even people who are scary prayers, I mean, who just those people who get up at four and, you know, pray for six hours a day, feel like they don't pray enough. And one of the things I think that happens is is we get prayer confused with an activity we do at a certain time in a certain way. For instance, we have in our mind prayer is when you stop, clasp your hands, close your eyes peek every once in a while at your prayer journal in your prayer closet and, you know, ask God for things. And, of course, you can do that, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's bad. But prayer is an entire attitude of life. It is a tire entire a uh, um, way of life whereby you are constantly communing with God and thinking about God and praising God and asking God for things and asking God for things in other people's lives. You pray to God uh, when you're brushing your teeth. You pray to God when, you know, you're driving around in your car. You pray to God when you're experiencing joy and happiness in your life. And you pray to God when you're experiencing trial. You, ex- you pray to God when you are rising up and when you're lying down and when you're sitting in the house and when you're walking along the way, you pray all the time. And that's what we see modeled in Jesus's life, isn't it? Did he have times of concentrated prayer where he stopped and prayed? Sure. And then we see him, like in our text here, just in the, in the, the routine of things, just praying. He's praying. And that's what's happened. And that's what you and I need to do. Jesus is being baptized and it says, he's praying. You know, and if you and I were baptized, uh, uh you know, you, you, what would we be saying? Whoo! These waters are cold. You know, this is, whoa, whoa, whoa! man, this is what colder than I thought, John. But see, Jesus, even though he, I'm sure he felt those same things, he was in control. He's thinking, you know, I could waste some time going. Instead, I'm going to take this moment, this spare moment, and I'm going to pray. And that's what we see him doing. Now, we don't know exactly what he prayed. We just know That he prayed. That is something that you and I need to pattern our life on. You know, when you find yourself just sitting there vegging, well, put your mind into prayer. When you find yourself thinking about things you shouldn't, put your mind into prayer. Be praying. Be praying without ceasing like Jesus did. Well, of course, when Jesus prayed in the text here, It was like pulling a pin on the spiritual grenade because all heaven broke loose. And that's what we see in our second point. Jesus's identity was confirmed for you in his baptism. Jesus's identity was confirmed for you in his baptism. Now, Luke's emphasis is not on the baptism of Jesus in the text. As a matter of fact, the whole mention of Jesus being baptized is a subordinate clause in the sentence. The main thing that the sentence emphasizes is what happened after Jesus was baptized. That is Luke's big point. So after the pin on the spiritual grenade is pulled by Jesus's prayer, several things happen, a whole series of things. The first is if you look at the second half of verse 21, the text says, and while he was praying, heaven opened up. Now, Mark 110, it uses a word um, which uh, means to tear. This one just means open. But Mark uses a word that means to be torn apart or divided or um, ripped apart, as the King James would put it, you know, and the old King James uh, rent asunder. It was it was as if when he prayed, he came out that the heavens were just ripped into kind of like when the israelites uh, were fleeing from the egyptians and they got up to the red sea the sea was just torn into it was parted and this is what's happening and you might be thinking to yourself because this is what i thought to myself what does it look like or how does it happen that heaven is torn apart opened up unzipped so to speak you know do you does it uh, you pull back some blue and there's black back there Uh, You pull back blue and there's more blue. I mean, what is that? Well, the Bible tells us, actually, as a matter of fact, it's a common phrase, the opening up of heaven, uh, as you look through the Bible. For instance, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, right before he starts his vision, says the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. You remember what happened when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was being stoned, he looked up and what happened? Heaven was opened up and he saw. The apostle John in Revelation 1911, do you remember what happens there? He says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So we know just from these examples that when heaven is opened up, What that is referring to and how that's used in the Bible, it's used of people who are receiving special revelation from God. Prophets who are receiving special revelations from God. The heavens are peeled back so they can actually look into the spiritual dimension. And it is one of the ways that God has chosen to communicate to a special select group of individuals. The second thing that happened is, if you look at the text, it says, not only was heaven opened, it says, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Now, commentators like stuff like this. Now, they get a little wild with this one. Some say, you know what this is? This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. You remember Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the heavens were formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and God's Spirit hovered over the surface of the water. They say, See? Now, even though no bird is mentioned in Genesis 1 2, a dove isn't mentioned in Genesis 1 2, only hovering is mentioned in Genesis 1 2, they reason to themselves. Now, you just think of, see if this is good exegesis of this text. Hovering is done by birds. Doves are birds, doves hover. Therefore, this text is speaking of the Holy Spirit in the creation account. Not good, is it? Bad answer. Now, they go into great detail trying to prove that, yeah, that, that, that's true. And there's a spiritual parallel here and a new creation that's coming about and all this stuff. Others say, no, 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 this dove is an allusion to Genesis 8, 8 through 12, where Noah sends out that dove and that dove comes back with the olive branch and symbolizes the hope of salvation from the flood. And then they go, well, whenever you get salvation in there. And so Jesus is our hope of salvation. And so the dove is representing the Holy Spirit pointing to Jesus and the hope of salvation to come. Just like Noah had the hope of salvation to come since the dove returned with an olive branch in its mouth. But that's not very convincing either. Still, others say, no, the dove is an allusion to Israel. And Hosea 11, uh, one and uh, uh, following where it talks about Israel returning to the land as migrating doves to uh, to nestle there on the land. Well, the first thing we need to do is solve the problem, is look at the text and really notice what it says. The text does not say the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. It does not say that. The text says the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus bodily like a dove. Like a dove. And believe me, if there was ever a generation that like needed to learn about similes, it's like ours. You know, like what I mean? The word like, along with the word as, is the little telltale sign that a simile is being given, a comparison word. It's similar to Of course, the youth culture has hijacked that word, like, and has used it as the universal all-purpose filler word. And they have corrupted their poor parents. Now I have people coming into my office, you know, like, and I just like, and I just... Then what happens is, is I go home and I tell my kids, so if it's like that, then what is it? Oh, Dan. And then they catch me using it. And it like drives me crazy. (laughs) But thankfully, in our text, the word like is used correctly. There was something physical when it says bodily or corporeal or in a physical material form came down out of heaven and it bodily lit upon Jesus. And it was similar to a dove. That's what the text says. Now, it could be that the Holy Spirit did descend from heaven in the form of a nice, white albino dove. But, you know, albinos are pretty rare. And usually the only place you find them is breeders who breed them and, you know, keep them out of the wild. Because you take a white dove and let it go in the wild and it becomes hawk bait. Most most of them are not white. But, you know, it works good on the Hallmark card. And it could have been that way. But mostly, maybe it was just your typical brown, can morning dove. You know, like we see around here. Psalm sixty-eight, thirteen, the psalmist speaks of the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions glistening with gold. You know, doves are really beautiful. And a lot of times, uh, unless you're a hunter, um, you don't really get to look at them up close. But they're really neat. You open up their wings, they're really beautiful. And those little ugly brown doves you see are really beautiful creatures. As a matter of fact, I even tell my kids, if you look at it real close, look at their eyes. They have blue eyeshadow on. They do. They have this little blue circle. Maybe that's why Solomon said to his bride in the Song of Solomon in chapter 1, verse 15, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. Maybe she had blue eyeshadow on. But these are very beautiful birds, and Jesus described them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, as innocent, innocent as doves. Now, have you ever seen a dove land? Now, sometimes, if you're a hunter, you see them land in a very ungraceful way. But when they're alive, they land very gracefully. And this fits very well with our text. The heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends, it's in a bodily form, and it lights very gracefully down upon Jesus, just like a dove, slowly, softly, gracefully, in some physical form, and it lights lights upon Jesus. And the phrase, like a dove, may refer to a literal shape of a dove. I'm not saying that it doesn't. Or it seems more likely that it might refer to the way in which It came down from heaven like a dove lands or both. We don't know. But one thing is clear. God purposely caused a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit to appear and land upon Jesus. Why? Well, do you remember why he had him do that in Acts? In Acts chapter 2, verse 1 and following, at the beginning of the church, there was a sound like the rushing wind, and then what happened? And then there were tongues as or like, simile, fire, distributing themselves and alighting upon each of them. God wanted the apostles to know that the Holy Spirit that He had promised was now coming upon them and so he allowed for that time a physical manifestation a visible manifestation of the holy spirit to come upon them and i think that is exactly what is happening in the text before us god wants jesus and john and possibly the crowds too to all see this event so they know that the holy spirit is now coming upon jesus It did not enter into Jesus. It came upon him. Now, what's interesting, if you go into the Old Testament and you look up spirit and upon and do a search, you will find that this is a very common thing that happens in the Old Testament also. For instance, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Moses and uh, the judges, you know, like Samson and and uh, the first King Saul and David and Elijah and Elijah and other people. And whenever it did, it always empowered them for ministry. And that is exactly what we see in the text. As a matter of fact, the very next verse in verse 23, when he began his ministry, he starts his ministry. And so this fits very well with what we see going on here. You see, because the Messiah was it was prophesied that the spirit would rest upon him completely. Actually, Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, speaks of what is called the sevenfold ministry of the spirit upon the Messiah. And it says this, Isaiah eleven two, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. A complete manifestation of the spirit would come upon jesus and i think that what's happening here is god is letting everybody know this is my anointed one and you know what anointed means messiah you know what christ means messiah and anointed and that is exactly what we see because right after our text the genealogy is given and the first thing we see in chapter 4 verse 1 jesus full of the holy spirit and then he launches off in his ministry And so I think what's clear here is that Jesus was shown to be the Messiah by the special physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit in that miraculous way. The third thing that we see in the text towards the end of verse 22 is a voice came out of heaven. And this voice came out of heaven saying, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And the text doesn't tell us specifically who said this, but obviously it was Jesus's father. And we're not talking about Joseph either. We're talking about his heavenly father. And here we have one of those places where you can see the Trinity crystal clear, can't you? I mean, look at the text. Notice what's happening here. You have God the Father sending God the Holy Spirit to land upon God the Son, and God the Father speaking to God the Son, saying, You are my Son. And that's about as clear as you can get. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons one god here all manifesting themselves in this text and god speaking from heaven is another thing we find in the bible that he did to his prophets not only does opening up represent um, receiving direct revelation to the prophets but god speaking from heaven we see that happening in places like isaiah 6 and ezekiel chapter 1 and the apostle john had it to a had it uh, happened to him over and over again in Revelation 4 and 10 and 11 and 14. We see the same thing happening, right, at the Mount of Transfiguration when a voice comes out, out of heaven. And I think in John chapter 12, it happens again. So what we have here is God the Father making a very clear statement to Jesus, John, and possibly all the rest of the people. Listen, this person is the Holy Spirit anointed Messiah Son of God, my son. Now, the phrase at the very end, in whom I am well pleased, or in you I am well pleased, um, really means in whom my favor or pleasure rests. God's pleasure would rest in his son. And this is probably an allusion to Isaiah 42. Now, if you've ever studied Isaiah, you know that Isaiah has a series of what he calls servant songs servant songs there's four of them the first one is isaiah 42 the most popular one is isaiah 53 you know the one about uh, who has believed a report and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed and he grew up uh, before us like a tender shoot out of a dry parched ground and we esteemed him not smitten of god and afflicted a man of sorrows acquainted with grief blah 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 all that stuff he goes down there the all of us like sheep and he was crushed and all that stuff is a servant song of isaiah and there's four of them the first one is isaiah 42 and then there's two others and Isaiah 49 and 50, but in Isaiah 42 in the first four verses, listen to this and notice how well Isaiah 42, one through four matches what this text, our text is saying. Isaiah now is writing 700 years before Christ would come and he's speaking of Christ and he says, speaking from God and he says, behold, my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick. He will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened, disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now, in this section, there are things that are going. Jesus was going to do at his first and second coming. But the things that really match up with our text is that first verse jesus was god's servant god was upholding him god chose him God's soul delighted in him and god put his spirit upon him and that is exactly what we see in our text so it seems that why this is, while this is happening god is saying this is my son and he summarizes everything that was promised of his servant who had come and so what does all this have to do with you you're sitting out there going okay jesus was the messiah so what Well, this is the so what Jesus is the only one that can save you because he is the Messiah. There is no other redeemer. There is no other savior. There is no other name as Peter said under heaven by which men must be saved. You can't be saved by your good works. You can't be saved by your moral lifestyle. You can't be saved by your, you know, philanthropy. You can't be saved by your church attendance or your Bible reading or your prayer or your religious activities. There is only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus, because he alone is the way he is the truth and he is the life. And no one ever comes to the father but through him. And, you know, you may know about Jesus. You may know about Jesus. You may even tell people that you're a Christian. But the question is this. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Have you done what John said? Have you repented of your sins? Have you fled from the wrath of to come into the arms of Jesus Christ? Do you know that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he lived a perfect life? and died on the cross for you in your place, suffering God's wrath that you deserved, paying the full penalty of your sins, satisfying God's just requirements so that you, through faith in him, could have the free gift of eternal life. Have you turned and received Jesus as your Savior, turned from your sin to follow him? That's what you have to be do. And if you don't do that, you will never be saved. You have to die to yourself. You have to take up your cross. That's what that means. And follow Jesus. And so the great application of this text, if you don't know Christ, is get to know him. Accept what he did for you to save you. Quit hanging on to your works. Quit putting him off. Today and only today is the day of salvation. And know that Jesus was baptized for you, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. Know that Jesus was clearly identified for you. And if you are a believer, you make sure that you follow Jesus and you attempt to fulfill all righteousness in your life through the strength that God provides and his grace. Don't be a 95% Christian. And follow Jesus' example of prayer. Try and make prayer just something you're always doing. You're always talking with God. You're always asking him for things when you're doing things, when you're talking with your boss, just every little bit of your life. Try and saturate it with prayer because this is what God's will is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And, Father, even though there are some hard things in it, things that uh, we can't really understand with any certainty, there are some things that are clear, Father, Jesus is an example for us and that he and John both needed to fulfill all righteousness and we need to do the same. And Jesus is an example in that he was always praying and we need to do the same. And father, we see your love and how Jesus was baptized for us. And that not only was he baptized for us, father, he was identified for us so that we could run to him as our savior, as our redeemer, as our good shepherd. Father, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, may they come to you on your terms this morning, humbling their heart, confessing their sin, and committing their life to follow you. Father, we pray this because we know it's your will. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.